are listening to the Evolution Exchange podcast, a melting pot of ideas and inspiration shared by some of the most successful technical leaders in the UK. I'm Mike Sullivan, I help connect businesses with tech talent, and today I'm your host. My name is Michael Sullivan and I'm your host for today. Welcome to the next instalment of the Evolution Exchange podcast. Today I'm joined by a very experienced panel um, to discuss the topic of the evolution of your development team. The time is quarter past two here at Evolution HQ in my hometown of Birchwood in Warrington. I'm very happy to say that England beat New Zealand yesterday in one of the highest run chases in the fifth day of test history. So today is a good day. But as Raphael has noted already in the pre-chat, it wasn't so good for the England football team, however. Before we delve deeper into the topic, let's work round our way around the room with some introductions. I'd like to know who you are, what you do, and also what you're passionate about. And let's start with you, Dan. Thank you. So, yeah, I'm Dan McNeil. I'm Head of Engineering at iTech Media. I've been there for about eight months now. Um, I lead the teams on one of our products, uh, one of our largest products and outside of doing that you'll find me writing recording music and reading an awful lot of books fantastic dan thanks for coming on and over to you Fran- francisco hello uh, thank you my name is Fran sanchez uh, i work at five ai um, it's a company developing autonomous vehicle technology um, software stack for the cars and also cloud platform for verification and validation um, outside work i like cooking um, i love traveling and I also spend some time playing video games and board games. Nice one, Fran. And yourself, James? Oh, hello, everyone. I'm James uh, Gallantly-Smith. I'm currently working as a CTO at a startup called Corey Kids. Um, and we're a tech company um, aimed at improving childcare uh, for families. We think it's too expensive, too complicated and not available enough. So we're sort of building this infrastructure that doesn't exist yet. Um, I've worked in a large variety of businesses and I've been leading and shaping and very interested in engineering teams for about 20 years. Um, my interests are currently, it's uh, my family and I spend a long time in the garden at the moment um, as summer's coming. Well, and last but not least, yourself, Rafael. Hello, uh, welcome everyone. Uh, my name is Rafael Skovas. I'm head of uh, technology at Digital Venture, leading team of amazing DevOps, uh, but developers of about 20, probably 20 plus now. We're recruiting constantly. Uh, my main interests, technology, human behavior, and well-being in general. I kind of believe in the balance between mind and the body. Football, it's my probably biggest love outside my wife. Fantastic. Great. Great to have you on, guys. Uh, before we delve deeper into the topic of the evolution of your development team, um, let's go to, uh, now we've, sorry, now we've established the, the context of each of you. Let's start off with your question, Dan, um, as I believe you'd like to go first. Yeah, so my question is around the growth of a company. So as a company goes from that phase where you have a small dev team, everybody knows everything, everybody's involved in everything, into a larger team with a broader set of people, broader set of skills. How do you bring in the stuff you need to do, like a little bit of process, a little bit of knowledge sharing, without losing the delivery speed and agility that you had when it was a very small team? Thanks, Dan. Would you like to kick things off, Ron? Yeah, of course. Well, I can definitely talk from 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 my experience, at least. Um, I would say when it comes to documentation, for example, right? Like quite often, what happens, and we all know that is. 
it, it's probably worse to have outdated documentation than not having documentation at all. Um, at least you're not misguided. So we, for some, encourage a lot documentation being very, very close to to the code and have it always like auto-generated. Um, that that basically reduces amount of effort and work. Then, as part of your guidelines for uh, merging new code into the repos, just make sure that one of the ticks is like have you updated the documentation. Uh, but always keeping it very lightweight and to the point, uh, less like you have. Uh, customer documentation, which needs to be usually more like richer, um, just keep it to the minimum. Um, the other two things that we quite like a lot is engineering guilds or like very specific guilds to disseminate information. Um, one team I have been working into something um, that they think everyone else would benefit to know about. Uh, so once a week we we have this session. It's very short, 45 minutes. One of the teams will present to every other in a very informal setup. Um, what is it about? Um, so anything that might be interesting that it can follow up later. And and the other thing is rumble, um, especially after an incident takes place. And there's a lot of know-how, how to fix it, how did it happen, how to restore the service, and capturing common those common things on runbooks and make it the default process. Like, okay, if something, if you need to do something, you don't know how it works or something, maybe have a look at the runbook. Um, maybe you find something that, that will help you to, to not have to discover the same things over and over. Um, but overall, I would say, uh, in general, I favor um, lightweight uh, documentation process, um, you know, unless it's like a safety critical thing or something highly regulated. Well, thank, thanks for the answer, Fran. And over to you, James. Yeah, it's, it's a really good it's a really good question. And I've certainly experienced that sort of te teams growing large. And then and my basic view is, do you, we should be doing what we possibly can to maintain the fast delivery because like fast delivery buys you a lot so if, for instance like you care a lot about documentation and actually having teams that can deliver quickly means they're delivering quickly so they'd like to deliver documentation quickly too the way the way i get around it is keep the team small and care about like how you're designing your organization so that teams can deliver without too many dependencies on other teams and then stuff like knowledge sharing there's a few things I've done which, are, which I, I can share with you, which I think are quite fun and they get team energized and it's a good way of sharing. One of them is um, rather than sort of, you know, architecture, drawing architecture diagrams about what you're going to build, um, get all the teams together for like a together day and then um, record, like video them as they draw up on the wall, the bits of architecture they know about. And then that team goes, goes out and watches another team come in and do the same thing. And you end up with this huge sort of complex map of everyone's different views on the architecture. Um, and then that's enough. And then, then you immediately have a coffee break after that. And then what you find is people automatically mingle and they find each other and then they share the knowledge that needs to be shared. So that's what it is, sprinkling of those like fun activities. There's, there's about four or five different things you can do as a whole team, which are sort of fun and engagement and make everyone feel that they're part of a bigger thing. And then connected to that is like, how are we actually going to design our teams and their missions and what they work on? So that actually, they it's really obvious about where they need to interface and where they're doing something that's going to impact someone else. And I think those are, those are my sort of two, 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 big, two big answers, but it's definitely um, something that happens. And also try and avoid teams with too many specialists in because then you have, the teams grow too large. So I think it's probably better to invest in sort of skilling up individuals within teams. Um, yeah. Thanks, James. What are your thoughts on that one, Rafael? I'll echo some of what James said uh, about specializations. Obviously, when you are a small team, what Dan was mentioning, 
everyone's doing everything. Everyone is aware of things because you no, know, there's just a few of you, even though obviously during the office days, you're all sitting very close to each other. So you can just turn around, you're talking, everyone is aware of what's going on. Now with the remote and especially when the thing is building up, growing numbers, it's getting more and more difficult because you're know, trying to have a meeting with 20 people on the call, just just not, not going to go. It's just just not going to happen. Uh, so then once you kind of start growing, so for, for me, the rule of thumb is as soon as you start reaching 8 to 12 people, it's a time when you need to split, have more smaller teams, make them specialized in a certain stuff. I don't know. In the, in the e-commerce world, let some of the teams be specializing on, I don't know, payments providers. Some of other ones will be just fixing bugs or just kind of providing the basic support. Documentations-wise, I don't know anyone who will say, you know what, I love it. It's just like, it's just, <laughs> okay, okay, we got, we got one. <laughs> but if no one likes it because all we want to do, we want to produce, we want to output, we want to make something not just writing the computations. The computations very often sounds quite counterproductive, especially for people just entering the engineering and entering the software development. But if you, you may very often hear all the code should be documented itself, which is very true. Obviously now with the, all the kind of auto-documented generators, you can just, just put a bit of markup, run the command, there you go. You've got the basic technical documentation, which is fine. But if you've got someone new joining the team, and this is where problems start becoming more obvious, the domain knowledge is just not there. The person needs to go in to learn what is actually going on. So what we're trying to do now to tackle this specific problem of lack of domain knowledge, it's start the documentations at the very, very beginning. Let the documentation be started by product, by the business itself. And then we come in, we, we're going to add our take. If business wants to do X, Y, and Z, they just give us the story. This is why we want to build this that's also give devs a context of why are we actually doing this? Then we're coming in with our solution. Oh, we're going to do this by implementing X, Y, and Z. That's where the programs coming, where the architecture changes coming in, different solutions. You know, it, that kind of goes off. And then once we finish our tech part, then it goes to the productions. Then we got the customer feedback just to see of what customers are saying about this. And then we got the full story from A to Z of this is what business wanted. This is what we, we have delivered and this is what customers are saying about that so then if you then pass it over to the new person joining your team it's like oh okay now it makes sense if you then someone from the different discipline comes into play oh i'm going to be working on this kind of feature then just like oh there you go this is what we have done this is what business wanted this is what we have done this is what customers are saying it's easier to kind of digest what is actually behind the scenes from all angles because no reading the code more or less everyone can go and just like oh yeah it's this this and these days know that the kind of self-documenting or auto-generated documentation is there so it's easier from the technical angle but harder as the product's getting more and more complex to understand the bigger picture Nice one, gents. Some very detailed answers there. And at least we know who the philophile is here in the in the podcast. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I suppose back, back to you, Dan. How do you increase things such as documentation and knowledge without losing the ability to deliver quickly? I, th I think for me, um, you know, I love the answers the other guys are given. And I think splitting into smaller teams is key because you can still maintain some of that agility. But the issue I found there is that if you have people who've been become accustomed to the idea of being in every meeting, being in every decision, almost knowing every line of code, 
suddenly they don't because those people are just in, you know, split into two teams and split into two, split into four teams and split into four. And for me, there's a part around supporting those people as well through that journey because it can be quite can be quite difficult for an IC who has been the go-to person for every technical decision to no longer be involved in every technical decision. And I think still giving them the ability to have impact, but also explaining to them that this this change is happening. Um, because the one the one symptom I've seen when this goes wrong is very, very big meetings. I've been in a few companies in this phase. And what happens is you'll set up a meeting to talk about, are we going to use this tech or not? And realistically, you need three or four people but you will end up with everybody in the team in the meeting because they would think, well, a year ago, I would have been in this meeting. I'm interested in the output, so I'm going to go to the meeting. So I think for me, you sometimes have to be a, a little bit forceful in driving that change and you know, being kind, being supportive, but saying to people, this is going to feel different because the culture that worked for a single team of six people is not going to work for an engineering organization of 100 people. And to me, the, the biggest problem is is the social one around people's expectations when that changes. Great stuff. Can I, just, just, I just need to comment on the meeting side, because this is something which when I joined the company, I joined the company, the current company about a year ago, there was a habit of meetings. And you're joining the meeting and there's obviously 20 of you. It just, just can't happen. You can't make any, any decision because there's just too many voices. So what I said to my team and this kind of we pushing out, if you are being, if you are going to join the meeting and you are a passive listener, don't join. Have a respect. Because if you're just going to be there just for the sake of being, you know, I would just rather you just say, no, I'm not going to be participating in that because this is nothing that I had nothing to input on. And as long as you said, if people, people will feel, oh, yeah, I always have opinion about something. Reality is sometimes all you need to do is two, three people just to bounce the idea and you're kind of done, you're moving. Otherwise, you have meetings about meetings about meetings and then follow up meeting is just way sign. And, and yeah, to follow on from that, the thing I then find is the team complain they've got too many meetings and don't have enough time to write code. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I can also quite resonate with what you said about someone that has been involved and in, in almost like nobody every single line of code um, and i have been there not not so long ago and i think it's just part of personal growth you need to learn to let it go um i want to believe at least that that happens only the first time that you encounter that situation then you learn then you learn like you need to trust your colleague um you need to let go things you need to focus on what you need to deliver um so i think it's part of the personal growth of each person as well I think that I think there might because because you could say to yourself, why are we wanting to have a situation where we're sharing lots of knowledge between teams and think, well, maybe we just don't need to do any of that. And maybe those people who are used to you know, making technical decisions, making business decisions, even deciding what work gets done, maybe they can still do that, but just within the d domain of their team. So we, what we've been doing what I've been doing the last couple of roles is like how can we do an extreme level of autonomy where there is no business the team's responsible for deciding what they do they make all their own technical decisions they can decide to use different programming languages if they want to they can do it anything they want um, and at the same time we have a sort of an access all areas sort of permission and what's weird when you do that is that teams often make conservative and sensible choices for themselves like the last not this company but the company before we it was mainly sort of um it was Ruby and then moved to sort of no JavaScript. And every team could do their own infrastructure deployment. They could do 
their own language choices, everything. They could database, they could choose it all. And, and over a period of, as soon as we've had that freedom, over a period of like two years, everyone was using the same stack and tech. And that reduced the amount of knowledge sharing you needed to do because the patterns were similar. And as they sort of explored and did different things, they immediately shared it with each other in a way that wasn't like, you should do this, but like a check out this cool thing we did, if you're interested, come on. And we didn't seem to have many meetings at all. Like a typical engineer would have maybe, apart from their sort of ceremonies and the time they spend with their own teammates, they typically have less than two hours of meetings a week. And that would be a bad week. So like, they're obviously with themselves the whole time. So they're, they're pairing and doing that stuff every day. So that, but I don't think that counts as a meeting. That, I think that's work. Um, but in terms of like meetings to decide a thing, those those weren't the norm. They were sort of unusual things. Um, and then again, like the knowledge sharing, Dan, which you mentioned, which is important. We tended to do those in person. And now we still do those in person. We can't do knowledge sharing remotely. We get the whole team together, um, have, a, have a nice day, and then just do an intense amount of like knowledge sharing in those sessions. We do that once a quarter and that's it. And that seems to be enough. And, and people form relationships and, and get to know each other. And that, that trick of having the coffee meeting after a session and then watching who goes and talks to each other, um, that's a really neat way. And you just find the relationships it's better than actually a formal structured meeting sometimes like, oh, I don't, oh, that's really interesting watching it happen. Great stuff, gents. And I uh, hope you're happy with your answers, Dan. Fantastic opening question. Over to you, Fran. So my question for you is like, um, some of you have already mentioned working in a startup. And I think pivot, pivoting in a startup is quite common. Um, more often than not, that means change, a change in the domain. Um, but in my case, I found it a bit more drastic than that. We, we had a company that has been uh, hiring people, for example, for embedded development, C++ development. Suddenly, we need to pivot into a cloud platform, completely different skills, um, like adopting DevOps as culture and learning a bunch of things. And the team were not ready for that. How, how do you handle that? But how do you go about it? Is it me first? Uh, <laughs> Okay, I'm James. I'll, I'll answer. I don't have quite that same experience in terms of like a software engineering language change, but we do. I can remember in the last place I worked, which was a um, great company called Triptease, um, where we were developing products that sort of helped help conversion on hotels' websites. And we decided actually a good avenue to go towards was to in performance, automated performance um, ad tech, which meant that the team had to sort of switch quite quickly to learn a lot about data science and it was a real eye-opener because i think the engineering community is quite mature in terms of the way it works its practices sort of the norms whereas data science is almost like a whole new like data science engineering is like a whole new type of thing so like they might use jupyter notebooks they might not be familiar with you know automated deployments and things like that and so we hired a bunch of um, data scientists and it's really complicated to try and solve the puzzle of having those people mixed with standard engineering teams and still be able to deliver in the way they did most importantly being in sync you know so they're working on the same kind of features at the same time and and so what we did was we found another company that <laughs> i i think i made friends with like two two other ctos one had a company that had been doing data science as its core business for ages and i thought they're pretty pretty good and we sort of got to know them through i think our sort of one of the vcs co-founded both of us and then we had another company that was just getting into it that was kind of kind of newer than we were, and then we set up a big like um, tech conference with just our three companies uh, with data scientists and engineers, and we just put on the board all the big problems we had and just asked them 
what they did to solve it. And it was really interesting. And we ended up with a, with like a more integrated, so we have software engineers and data scientists working in the same teams. Um, but yes, it was it was it was really hard. I don't know if that sort of helps, but like the, the way we did the pivot was we hired we hired the people of new skill set, kept them working, integrated them tightly with the existing skills, and then acknowledged to the whole team that we didn't know what we were doing, and then had a conference so we can so they could talk firsthand to other people that were in similar situations to them, other engineers and other data scientists. Yeah, it was a good day. On this one, I think it's it depends from which angle we look at this. If we need a rapid change, so like literally from tomorrow, we know we're going to pivot to something different. I don't know. Let's just focus on programming language because this is quite quite easy to talk about. It's if you need the knowledge now. Yeah, I think what James mentioned. Just admitting we don't have it, who can help? I think it's the best solution because otherwise you resolve you in this case you just resolve the problem on the spot. You're just being open. This is where it is. We have what we have. Uh, but if the if you see the change coming, if you speak with any of the engineer, it's or any of the good developer. It's not about knowing the language itself. It's not about knowing C++. It's not about knowing the Python. It's about thinking as the engineer. If I want to say. I don't know. If I want to express and describe my feelings, if I'm going to do that in English, Polish, Japanese, Chinese, it doesn't really matter. It's just a language. It's just a way of communicating from, from one point to another. It still means the same thing. If you're thinking as the engineer, if you're thinking as the developer, the language is just something you can just go and learn. It's yes. It will, you won't be a specialist in the month two or three. You won't be the, I don't know, the, the bleeding edge straight away or like specialist. You won't be able to maybe use some of the more fancy feature of the language. But you'll be able to pick up any language pretty much in the matter of weeks, maybe months. So if you can see that coming, then you can use that for the advantage. Because what I found with, with my team and with every team I've ever been leading, it's people like to learn new stuff. That's actually what keeps them going. It's like, oh, you know what? Now we got all this data science. Now we get all this machine learning. And then your company will say like, yeah, but then we don't really have a need for this because that's our business model. But if all of a sudden you can tell them, oh, you know what? We can actually use this some new stuff. They will love it. They will actually be buzzing just to get hands on something which is not the day to day. So yeah, you should be always open. And I think that comes back to what was mentioning about splitting the smaller team. You can gradually make the change, and then you can just gradually make the changes happen. What James was saying about, oh, we give the full autonomy to each of the teams, and they all pick the same thing. They were all sharing in sense of like, no, oh, we have learned this, or we're going to use this because of X, Y, Z kind of conference. But it's like, oh, guys, we tried this super fancy stuff. People like sexy new stuff. It was like, oh, you know what? Yeah, I want it. Show me, show me. And people say, you know what? Yeah, I can show you. Come on. So it's, yeah, it's just about how you play that game. It should be, you should be always open. And non-language is forever, apart maybe from... So if I can say that, because I think maybe we, we were highlighting too much the language. I don't think it's as much the language as the mindset. Like, if you can think of someone that has been, has been hired and has been developing embedded, um, maybe following some, you know, regulation, maybe like Misrasi or something like that. And the way they work, like they have their, you know, the development boards and their IDE and their coding in C or C++, whatever. Um, and they're familiar with like a, a release process and then you ship a release. And now we're talking about DevOps. We're talking about um, keep like taking ownership of deployments, uh, keeping it running, servability, monitoring. What is AWS? What is Azure? What is that? Um, Language-wise, I would say we can even like um, ignore that. Uh, it's like the mindset as well. 
like big change. DevOps is also like a, a different way of thinking about what the code you write and, and what is your 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 product. Yeah, but the, it's, I think the one thing just to come back quickly on this one, it's no one likes changes. So if you got your IDE set up and then all of a sudden you need to pick switch to something else because all of a sudden you are doing a benefit and now you need to go and deploy it through Azure or something. It's it's out how you're gonna sell it. Because some people will say, you know what, no, I don't like to doing this. I'm I'm C all day long and I like this kind of culture of doing it's some people just just let it go it's just happened just part of the life that's fresh blood comes in but to others someone will say like oh you know what it's a new thing it's exciting it's maybe future is just to, to be quote and i don't want to kind of overuse that but it's it's something you can put your hands on something new i think yeah for me um the thing that's interesting that i know a couple of you touched on already is if you know this is going to happen, you have to make sure you have a team of people for whom this is a good thing. It is much harder to do this if you've had a team which has never pivoted before, never changed anything. You know, in a huge organization, been rolling along for years, it's not going to go well if you try to pivot. But if you know that, you know, you're in an early stage startup, you're in a, a changing environment. To me, it should be part of the hiring process to be open with people and say, look, this is what we're doing now and this is how we're doing it. But this might have to change. And then you'll get people for whom this will be quite exciting. You know, this will be something where they say, oh, I get to learn this new thing. I get to, to do this new thing. I think the other part of it for me is that there is, however well you do it, there is a cost to doing this. And, um, you know, we've talked about maybe hiring new people with the skills and embedding them. I think there's also nothing wrong with going out and getting temporary external help, whether that's bolstering the team with contractors, whether that's getting some consultancy in to come do training, or even people to just come in and work with the team for a bit. And you know, sometimes you'll get a business says, oh, well, we can't afford to do that. But actually, the alternative is that you have a team running so slowly for so long that it's costing you more anyway, because it's not just within engineering that we have to acknowledge that we're not experts. The rest of the business has to acknowledge that if this team's pivoted, depending on the size of the pivot, they could be going back to a very junior team. They could be going back to starting for nothing and deliveries will take longer quality will drop, um, technical decisions will be less sound, all these things will necessarily happen as they get back to where they were in the new, whatever the new environment is. Um, and the other thing is that, you know, it's, it's kind of like something we don't often talk about, but not everybody will go with the change. If you pivot, I mean, even something as simple as programming language if you make a dramatic shift in programming language you might have somebody in the team who just says actually working in that language doesn't interest me and it's important to respect that and work with it and if that person ends up moving on that might be the right thing for everybody nobody actually wants it to happen but that might be the right thing for them as well as for us to get somebody else in who's more aligned with where where we're going or what we're doing in the new world yeah, I quite like the reference that sorry, I quite like the reference that this is this is something with business also needs to understand that the product is pivoting. We're just following the needs of the business because in the end of the day we are suppliers, we are providers of solutions, what which then business kind of initialize. So yeah, it's kind of transparency, guys. Yeah, we're gonna switch from A to Z, but that means that we were delivering, I don't know, we were releasing every day. Now it's gonna be every month because just not that and yeah there will be an extra cost yeah I, yeah i like, like the idea of getting if you if you need to pivot to different skill sets i think it's a really sensible and mature idea to 
get some experts in in that skill set to sit alongside your team. And also, don't forget, you're going to need to, you're going to be a complete newbie at recruiting and hiring as well. So you need someone who, like, what is a principle-based scientist? Um, so yeah, we, we did that in the past. We got um, a specialist firm to come in and work with us and also help us recruit. And we thought that was a very, it's expensive, but you get going a lot faster. The thing is that the cost, it's not purely what dollar you're going to put on the table because you need to get that. It's, it's everything slows down. So, so you've got the, the cost of not delivering fast enough. So you're losing kind of income. So yeah, massive cost, big decision. And then everyone needs to be on board because and usually it's a case that you can probably go around this one way or another. It's not going to be optimal, but maybe it's going to be long-term just cheaper going for the business to go. In. And then depends on you know, how healthy the business is from the financial perspective. Sometimes, oh, using data science and just bringing someone in, just come on, come in, just do this piece because, and we can just build around that. It will be good enough. Great stuff, guys. Having, having heard the three answers there, Francisco, I'd be interested to know how you handle product pivots requiring different skill sets from your teams. I think everything, I've, or almost everything I've been said already, um, it's the same, the same way I think about it. Me, first of all, like being very transparent up front, telling everyone in the company, this is what's going to happen. This is why um, once everyone understands that the mission may have changed and why it has to change, um, there will be a phase of a thing support, right? Like, look, we, we're going to learn together. We're going to get help. We need to, um, some people won't go with it, right? As you said, um, if you're losing like people because they, this is the thing they want to be doing, you need to accept that that's going to happen. Um, and you don't, you don't necessarily want to, to force them um, you know, giving them like a, a golden handcuff or anything like that, they're not going to be as helpful for the, the delivery of your product. Once that's done, um, you need to build a team. Um, before you build the teams, I guess you need to make sure that those teams understand the product after the pivot. They need to understand what is it that we are trying to deliver? How is it different from what we are doing before? Once they internalize that, when they, when they fully understand, okay, this is what we need to build, this is what we need to deliver, it's time to enable them to deliver that because they, they will be lacking some skills that they need now. Um, one of the things, for example, we, we, we did when we had these people was we, as I said, we were moving from more embedded C++ systems level development um, to towards more like cloud platform development. But we had like a, what we call a foundation team, an infrastructure team. Um, and they, had, they, they were the ones with more knowledge about DevOps, deployments, cloud development, all of that. So we created an enablement team. We, we created an enablement team, compared with the different teams in the organization, trying to help them to come up to speed in specific areas. Um, the other key thing for me was also creating like a few platform teams. And there were common things that we didn't necessarily want everyone to reinvent, like the deployment pipeline or the logging and traceability staff, observability staff. You can have teams whose mission is to provide us a platform to the rest and these common services so they the, the new teams can focus more on the domain um, and just learn to use those like platforms um but yeah in the end you you'll get that you just need to to get the right help and you need to make sure the teams understand their their new mission I think that's critical perfect sounds like that one could have been a podcast within itself from <laughs> so over to you james with your question oh yes okay so um i've I'm on, I think in terms of CTO at startups, I'm on role number three. So I've got, got into a startup, which usually has an existing team, um, 
look at it was we learn lots of stuff we get it going we get to a point and then there's a whole bunch of sort of knowledge and learnings we build up and what i love to do is when i join a new place sort of have a starting point um which is sort of like what i've learned and then we start from there and then we try and sort of improve and each time um i want to get it better than what we achieved last time um so i'm into curious to know that if if um if you were starting if you're starting fresh and you had a new team what would be your starting point how do you set up a team um or a series of teams i know you have to make lots of assumptions from the get-go, what, what would be the things that you do? And then what would you be aiming to improve? So starting brand new team, you, you just walk in, no one there. You have to start literally from scratch. Yeah, go on. I don't think I have ever been in that situations like that. So usually when I join, there's always someone, uh, at least a person. But I think the first thing is why you have actually brought me here. So speaking with the business, why I'm here, what do you expect, what do your expectations are? And then just kind of said, reality is, some of the stuff we may not be able to do. So in the, in the current recruitment market, it's difficult to get anyone on the, let's just say, on, at the reasonable salary because the, the market is just bubbling, which is just, just, just meant from that perspective. So then the reality is that you know, if, if you're coming in and the business say, oh yeah, we want to set up 20, uh, a team strong of 20 developers and we got 20 grand, it's like, well, yeah, good luck with that. Uh, just to set the, real, the the kind of expectations straight, it's like this is something we can actually do. This is what we can actually do just to fulfill your needs because everyone will have their own needs. Everyone will say, oh, we want this and that. Uh, instead of how I personally go about the hiring, it's we kind of trying to put this apart culture, which is wherever I'm hiring. And it doesn't matter discipline. I don't do any technical questions. I always speak first with the candidate and not just because I have nothing better to do. I just want to see if the person fits kind of my way of working. So, so what we have is be part, to be proactive, ambitious, reliable team leader, a team player. If you kind of fulfill those, then the technical skills comes usually as the second thing. Because if you are eager, if we're just starting the team, which means that the company most likely is just a startup. We're just starting the journey. So, so get someone you know that then can pivot quickly. It's it's constantly wants to get something done, get something new being built in. It's not afraid to fail because very often you just try something that may not work. Set the expectations. Make sure that you are all clear with everyone about, okay, this is where we are. This is where we're planning to do. This is the plan for, I don't know, upcoming six, maybe 12 months, and not purely from the product perspective, because that may change, especially in the early stage of the company. And honestly, I personally believe if you set yourself a roadmap for like two years ahead, you have to already be quite established business to be able to plan so far away. Otherwise, three months down the line, your competitor will bring some future and it's like, okay, regroup we we need to regroup we need to pivot we need to get more teams we need to get specialists from external because it, that's the reality yeah. which validates the, the kind of what you expect were, were there any like i'm kind of interested in like what were the no-brainer sort of ways of working that you just institute immediately that you've learned in your past yeah i think just you know what's the budget so then you can kind of plan how big the team is do we, are we able to set up different teams? Can we start setting up different domain knowledge from the get-go? Or we just like, you know what, we got only for six, six people, that's the team. So it means that most likely we'll be doing everything. You need to pick the technology, whichever you personally feel it's the most suitable for the business itself. Because you need to kind of start 
putting job descriptions, job kind of specifications out there so you can work with the recruiters because these days you can't just work on your own and just like, oh yeah, I'm hiring, they're everywhere. Uh, but, but you need to provide them with something. So this is, for me, this would be like establishing the, the kind of foundations. We're going to be building using this language where we're going to pick those technologies and roughly it's going to look like this. And then kind of join people, go after people who will support you not as close to your kind of mindset as you are, then technical skills. Um, I don't want to say, but can anyone else hear a funny noise? Is it like a water noise? Yes. Yeah. Like, oh, like that's a... Michael. I opened the door and I've, I've got a water feature outside. So I should close the door. <laughs> Is that better? No. Oh, it wasn't me then. It's like a very fast, I can't make the noise. Yeah, it's gone for me. It was like a little caterpillar walking across the microphone. <laughs> yeah. Okay, it's gone. Where were we? Right, it was me, wasn't it? <laughs> Go on, Dad. Yeah, so one thing I've noticed throughout the years, having you know built teams from scratch and also taken over teams and worked with them, grown them or whatever, is when I look back, not all my teams have ended up the same, but they've all kind of got my fingerprints on them somewhere. And yeah. if you took anybody from any of the teams I've built and put it into another team I've built, they would recognize bits of it. And I spent a long time thinking, well, that's a bad thing because I should be a completely adaptable leader and I should build teams that match the thing. But actually, there's nothing wrong with the teams looking quite similar. You know, Ed Sheeran puts out another album. It still sounds like an Ed Sheeran album, even though it's full of new songs. And that's done him okay. And actually, whenever building a new team, I just think, what is the closest team to this I've had experience with? And how was that team set up? Because it's not going to be how this one ends up being set up, for sure. But it's a pretty good place to start. You know, it's a pretty good idea to start with. Well, let's bring that in. And I don't always really have an idea of even how many people are going to be in the team at the start. You know, we might have an idea of budget. We might have any idea of what we've got to do. But for me, the first couple of hires are the the key ones and the first hire I would always make is somebody who can help me shape the team so somebody who can come in you know maybe it would be um, a tech lead who's also been in teams that have come from nothing as well because what that means is as soon as they start I'm no longer making the decisions alone you know my my decisions are now being peer-reviewed which when it's just me they're not <laughs> and I do treat it a bit like an MVP of, you know, some software you're writing that you get the team to the point where you can start to do some stuff that, you know, the wheels can start turning, it can start moving and then go, actually, here's a thing I think we're missing. Because if I knew I was going to build, a, say I was going to build a, a standard team and it was going to be you know, like six, seven people or whatever, on day one, I'd have a really solid idea of what I wanted the next person to be. I'd probably have a pretty good idea of the profiles for the next couple after that. But person number seven, I've no idea what they need to be until we've seen the first few people come in and start to shape out where are the gaps in the team. And the other thing, and this kind of comes back to something we talked about in the previous one, is I think it's important to pace the growth of the team. I know you could go through hyper growth, you could build teams very quickly or whatever, but I still think there needs to be a measure on the speed of growth of the team you still need to consider each hire you still need to give time for each decision you make on how the team's going to operate to at least play out a few times so you can say was that the right decision or that was that the wrong decision um and also going in a kind of 
agile way of building a team makes it relatively easy to unwind stuff. I unwind stuff, I don't mean get rid of the people you hired, I'm not talking that dramatic, but as you're kind of putting processes in place, as you're making decisions about how this is going to work, how it's going to be together, if you make small incremental decisions, you can always fix them as you go. Um, and for me, the, the key to making that work is not to have a preconceived idea of exactly what the team's going to look like when it finishes. You know, it's like if I wanted to build a car out of lego it's very different for me to say i'm going to buy the vw beetle kit because i want something that looks exactly like vw beetle to say actually i just need to build a car which will fit through this gap and it will drive itself up that slope and it will fall off without braking i couldn't tell you what that car is going to look like at the beginning but i could tell you it's going to need some wheels it's going to need a chassis so that's where i'd start yeah really really good answers and i think i would first of all probably look at it from from an architectural slash organizational point of view. Like if there is a new team, why? Like, I mean, probably you all are familiar already with Conway's law, but the product you're going to deliver is going to mimic your communication structures in the company. So why is it that we have a new team? Is it really um, a new subdomain in the product? How does it how does it connect with the all the existing parts of the business? Why, 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 why do we need this new? So that will help to understand the team mission and, and it will help to understand whether it's even the right thing to do or not maybe we can propose to to just reinforce another team and um, that's not too big um, but once we understand that like that for me that would be the first thing i would try to understand why we need this new team um, once we have the team and we probably understand the mission we understand the product of the team i quite like like product team and they the, the first thing for me is to 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 make them own their product um and then start iterating quickly um, just what Dan said, said you, you don't really know what's going to happen down the line, so you better start with small increments um, and get everyone in the team delivering something together quickly is one of the best ways to build trust. Um, the more they trust each other, the more they get to know each other, their queers, how they like things, how they do not like things, all that's going to just to help to deliver faster. Um, and then people from there and just make small adjustments as you go. Um, but for me, the keys are that understand the team context in the organization, understand the mission product, but what is it the team needs to deliver, build trust. Thank you, gents. And I suppose back to you, James, what would your starting point be for, for, for a new team and, and what would you be aiming towards? <laughs> well, thanks everyone for your answers. Um, I think because I kept the question quite loose, it's really interesting to hear all your different points of views and, and the ways of treating the question. Um, uh, my starting work, well, so I would carry across, like as a starting point, like keep the team small, um, really small. Um, I would probably start off with not having team leaders in these small teams. I'd encourage things like the XP values, like pair programming, and I'd use that when hiring. Um, and yeah, so that, and then, and then the first thing I would do once the team is established, so so it could be a, could be like it's kind of, I'm imagining I'm the person that's new. And it could be an existing team joining, which I know none of you um, uh, commented on. But that, in that case, I would like try and just like get the whole team together, whoever's there, and just and just agree these are our values. Um, and then I would usually copy quite a lot of materials that I'd produced over the years from previous teams, and maybe a bit like approach a bit like Dan Dan has, which is like what's a pattern of team or behaviours that I think would really work in this business and then just try and get that done as a baseline and go at least we've got something working and then then it's over to the team you know to to go ahead and, and change that 
But there's there's a few things that, that I've done in the past that I don't automatically transfer over, but I wait until um, to see if the team, that's the sort of thing that would work with the team, and then sort of see if, see if we can achieve the idea. Um, uh, things like um, like sort of some, some of the extreme autonomy stuff. So like uh, in the previous startup before this, we didn't have any um, engineering managers or line managers. We we decided actually a lot of that work to be done by the team members. So rather than sort of A managing B, C, D, we had A, A, A sort of um, sponsoring B, who sponsors C, who sponsors D, who could sponsor A. So it's like everyone's like a peer network. And then we used the cash that we would have spent on engineering managers to um, skill up the team. So like, and then and then the idea there was to let everyone do what they're good at. So if someone was actually really enjoying coaching and really good at it, then they could take on three others that they would do that for. But they could be like a more junior or, or less experienced than the other person. And that was really fun. It took a long time to get going, um, but but when it worked, it was really good, and everyone everyone really really took their roles seriously, um, and that was quite quite good. And they did a much better job than I'd be able to do if I was having to do all those all those one to ones myself. Um, yeah, you know, that's an example of a thing that I, I would I would not bring across automatically. But like the the core stuff, like um, um, like trying to get pairing in place, trying to trying to keep the team small, um, trying trying to boost the autonomy and and um, get them making as many decisions as possible. I would do straight away. Well, interesting because the, my kind of question is: okay, you entering the team, which already ah, there, it's established. Not a question. <laughs> so so it's, it's quite interesting to hear that you know, okay, we're starting. You walk in the room, it's empty. My room is full. What are you uh, going to do then? How how are you going to approach that? You know, how are you going to because it's the team is already there. It's let's just say it's already for months or maybe even years. It's well established. The new coming in, I don't know, maybe the previous manager just left, or maybe the company decided that we need to put some kind of a, a leader top of the team. Maybe. How are you going to then act? What what are you going to do? What first months or two, three months even will be for you? That's a way better question. <laughs> so it just, I'll just say it's just extension. It's just evolution of your question. Yeah, yeah, nice. I think for me, I think it's always difficult going in as a manager to an existing team because it's like somebody's just kind of pulled you off the street and stuck a badge on, which says, I'm the leader now. And you go in and you go, I'm here. And everybody's looking at you, waiting for something. And you're like, mm -hmm. um, <laughs> so I can you, I find you need to strike a balance where you come across as self assured. So you come, you know, you give people confidence that know what you're doing, but you don't want to come across as arrogant. You don't want to come on as kind of, you know, I'm going to come in and tell you how to do this. Um, so for me, one of the first things I do is ask the team, both individually, it depends on the size of the team that, that you're taking on, but individually, if it's small enough, and if not, you know, some key people around the team, um, what are they expecting? You know, what what would they what would they like to see from me? What would, would what are the things that they would consider important from, you know, somebody coming in to do what I'm going to do? And I think it's it's important to um, remember that when you go in, you are the least knowledgeable person about what that team does on day one. Literally, a grad who started a week before you is going to know more about the team than you do at that point. And I think it's very important to remember that, to ask questions and also to own your own mistakes and your own vulnerability in that, because you will go in and make mistakes. You will go in and call a piece of tech the wrong thing or get an acronym wrong or get somebody's name wrong. You will do 
something like that. I mean, I, I did it certainly here. And if you're anything like me, you feel a little bit stupid and you feel like, oh, what's everybody going to think of me now? Because I forgot the name of that key system that somebody told me a couple of hours ago. But I think I just own that. You know, be vulnerable, be transparent and say, look, I'm here. I know nothing. I'm learning this. I am going to make mistakes on the way. But behind me, I have a track record of doing this successfully before. So I know I'll be able to do it successfully here. I don't know what all the answers are, but I will be able to find them. Um, one mistake I made when starting in a recent job, actually, was I don't think I connected with the individual devs enough, quickly enough. Um, and I think that um, obviously, you know, I spoke to them, I had one to one with them, I chatted with them, I found out what they were doing, but I don't think I invested enough time in my first couple of months in actually getting to know each dev in the team individually. I kind of spent my time more getting to know how does this hang together, how does it work, where are the pain points, where are the areas to focus. And if I were doing it again, I would concentrate more on building the personal relationships with everyone i think the other thing if if you've done your homework when you're going somewhere and you know let's presume this is a new company you're going into if you go into a good culture you won't automatically have everybody's respect and trust on day one but you should automatically have their goodwill so people will want you to succeed a team's you know generally a team's got a new leader they'll have expectations on that leader but generally it's a friendly crowd because generally they want the leader to succeed because if the leader succeeds, the team succeeds. So they want a successful leader because that will make things better for them. So whilst you can't kind of, you do have to work to build the respect and that's about listening to people, being open, respecting people's knowledge, asking people to show their views. You need to build that. I think you can, as I say, rely on the fact that people want you to succeed from day one. Doesn't just throw the curveball over here. What if you're joining the team and someone with aspirational of taking that position has been rejected by the company, the company decided, actually, I would rather go external. And then you are coming in, as you said, the first thing you're walking in, you have no idea what they're doing exactly, how the product looks like from under the bonnet. You don't. Well, it's, it's actually an interesting situation that I've been in. Um, and the person actually said to me within the first few weeks, you know, I wanted the job you've got. Um, but actually, that's a good thing, because realistically, neither of us has actually done anything against the other person. You know, neither of us has actually done anything which should cause the other person to feel any antagonism. And it's a case of that has to come to the surface. That could be a real problem if it bubbles under and somebody never says anything. But if you can build the trust and the respect that somebody feels safe to say, actually, I had aspirations on that job and you came in, you can have a conversation with them to say, well, what aspects of the job was it appealed to you? What was it about this role that you wanted to do? And work with them because the thing about being a leader is the to-do list is always longer than the list of stuff you're going to get done. There's always something that, that, that falls off the to-do list. And so if you have somebody in the team who has the bandwidth and the interest in doing some of the stuff, nothing says that all the tasks on a leader's to-do list actually have to be done by the leader. I mean, you know, there's delegation and empowerment. So there might be a way to give them what they wanted in terms of the things they wanted to do. And actually, you know, maybe I'm an idealist, but maybe you could make them glad that you came into that role down the line not immediately immediately not going to happen but maybe a little bit of time will pass and then they'll be happy that you joined
Yeah, it's quite, quite interesting because with, well, I believe there's the, with the great power comes the great responsibility. And you coming as the leader, you automatically got the responsibility. The power may be not necessary because if you if you hadn't get the trust, respect, then the power is kind of questionable to a certain degree. But you got the responsibility. And you said, if you empower others, I can give you the power. I don't have to make the technical decisions or like I can, I can just be consulted on but I'm happy for you to carry on with this brighter aspect of, of the leadership, and I'll just take the dark side. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I am by far the least qualified person to make detailed technical decisions in a team of developers. So, for when it when it comes to technical decisions in a situation like this, like okay, you you are new in the team, and you have been appointed either team lead or tech lead or something. Um, yeah, it's like. Personally, I, I, li I like to be careful there and not, especially I don't think I need to make a decision there because probably, as Dan said, everyone else already knows more than me about what they're doing. Um, something I quite like is um, architectural decision records. Um, for those of you who are not familiar with it, it's a document where you say, you state your problem and you, you pick a few people as the, the decider and then you set your, like two things, you set the decision driver, you set competing option. Um, I find that in general, um, people quite like it, but especially engineers, software developers, they like, like, they like to understand why something's done. They like to, they have their own opinion on how things should be done. Um, so this is a collaborative and transparent way of doing it. Everyone can participate. At the end, the deciders will pick something, but everything has been discussed and there will be a record of why this particular decision was made at that time. So later developers, when they come some months, years after, and they say something, why, why, why was it done this way? Who decided to do it? Oh, okay, it was because of that. They already knew about this or that, but something has prevailed. It's a very transparent and collaborative way of doing it, yet it's also um, something you can time box, and probably you should time box. You are not going to get everyone uh, agreeing with a solution, and, and, and that's fine. Disagreement and commit. At that point, the deciders will pick the one because of all the reasons given, and you just need to build the 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 culture to accept that okay if we fail that's fine we just go back to the adr and we make a new revision and we learn together and um, next time we will know more and we'll make a better decision but i quite like that way of making technical decisions delegated to the teams and even the people from outside of the teams can participate in the process and generally they seem to work to 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 either like be more successful or fail faster and learn something um the other thing is yes, like you you are new in the team. Um, probably your there, there are like two things. Like from an exec point of view, maybe they think you are going to provide some technical expertise to help the team deliver faster. But on the other hand, you don't want to be seen by the team as an arrogant one. Like you said, like you don't want to say, oh, we should do it this way because they know better. Um, so servant leader initially, it's a good role to adopt. Try to know. Um, like personally care about each of them, so like pastoral care about all of them. Get get to know them, get get their trust. Um, and in situations like the one you described, like maybe there is someone in the team that had aspiration to, to to take that role, but it didn't happen. Just be like it's really good if it comes up. It gives you the opportunity to 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 help them. Like, okay, why why do you think you were not given this position? What can we do so people that made that decision? change their mind and, and enable them to 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 improve and enable them to 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 get where they want to be yeah if 
because I think Steamlib you can do those things. Okay, um, that's fantastic. I, I'll try and I try and say things that add to what people have said rather than um, re repeat. Um, but if I do, please forgive me. So, like when, when I'm joining a new team, um, I do do pretty similar things or have done pretty similar things. So the first thing I do is if I'm coming in as a CTO, uh, I'll try and sort of try and speak to the person who's responsible for all the product in the company. Um, so it would be the chief product officer, typically, in my experience, it has been, and try and join up our organizations at the hip. And that'd be that'd be like job one is to get to know that person and form and, and start forming a partnership with that person. Um, second thing, second thing um, is usually during interviews, you get to meet um, and get a, a general view or idea about what the team's going to be. You would have met um, a few of the existing engineering leaders. So I set up like a mini leadership team, um, just try and find the responsible adults in, in the team and join up with them. Um, and then with those people, um, work on getting like an initial plan together. Um, yeah, so, so do that. And once you've got a plan, then just broadcast it to the entire company. This, this is the plan, this is what I want to do. And I'm doing this in addition to doing um, the stuff that has been mentioned before, like getting to know the people, uh, getting to establish our values, uh, and, and setting up routines and things like that. Um, and also notice that you've got a, a new person advantage, um, which is which is really good because when, when you're there for a while, your ability to have time to think clearly about these things, you never seem to get it back. And it's always a bit, <laughs> it's a bit disappointing when you're like, oh, when I first started, I had such clear plans. In fact, I've I just brought up my plan and it's still something we, we, we look back on and use it to judge if we're actually doing a good job or not. Um, in leading the product engineering leadership team. So um, it's something that's really good, that sort of clarity of thought when you just arrive, um, when you're completely free from meetings and you're just learning is fantastic. So yeah, hold on to that. And so the artifacts you build then, you don't be surprised that you're still relying on those um, years later and they're super useful. Does that, does that answer your question? Yeah, I quite, I quite like the, the new person card because this is something you got once. You're joining in and there, there, obviously, there, there are multiple factors, but one of the factors, the tech team always wanted something which, well, always, most often want something which business kind of put the foot down, so like, maybe not, maybe yes, but you are the new person, they will see you as a chance to get this done, I don't know, bring something in or upgrade this or reduce the tech that or just, just put more emphasis of, of X, Y and Z. This is something you can, this is kind of situations, one stone kills multiple birds. You get the trust, you get the respect among your team. Also, you're bringing product forward and also the business will see you as the, oh, why we never thought about that? Even though when most likely people were keep on saying about this, oh, why are we not doing this? Why are we not doing this? But maybe their voices were just not heard. So this kind of you can potentially use for the advantage. But for me, when I joined the established team, it's behind every developer, there is a human being. Not all of them will tell you, oh, I had aspirations because some people are just, they will not go and express that they were expecting the company will magically recognize them. Oh yeah, you could be the leader. Oh yes, you could take this role. They will never say that they will expect the company will come to them and say like, oh yeah, hello, yes, you can do that. So they will never tell you in the face. They will never be that transparent and honest. That, that's just us, the human beings. We just don't expose everything we have. But if you open up and say like, I'm here, this is what I've done, you need to put the cards up front. For me, transparency is the key. If you're transparent with them saying, oh, I'm here to do this, this and this, they brought me to get this done, and this is what I have done. But there's also this 
talking and there is doing, you can say whatever you want by just your actions, what you actually have done to show them, yes, you care. Yes, you want them to succeed because you as the manager, your success is only there if your team is succeeding. You are kind of driving on their back. If they don't succeed, there's no way you will be succeeding. Even though if you're going to do 120% of your norm, hold whatever measurements, whatever KPIs you have on your personal level, it doesn't really matter. It's all about the team because it's you are one, two of them, three of them can do as much more than you can do yourself. You always rely on the team. This is something where, where your success or potential failure lies. So it's focus on the team, but focus on the team personally. Meet them personally. See what they're up to. Why are they even here? What, what are they doing? You will never know the product. You will never know the tech on the level they do. There's just no way. You don't have time for this. So rather support them to have this knowledge than being this alpha and omega person. I think that's what I would kind of, and that's what I'm always trying to do when I'm entering the team, especially the established one, because you just need to show this is who I am, get to know me. I want to know you. I will open up. This is what I'm doing and show them by actions, not only by words. Fantastic, Jensen. Yeah, re really happy the way the last two questions evolved to coin your phrase, Rafael. Really interesting answers from, you know, starting from zero and, and to a full house. Uh, thought, no, no, I thought it was great, great questions and answers there. Does anyone have anything to add or anything for each other? Any final ad hoc questions? I've got a minute or so. I have to admit that what James said, you know, the kind of flat structure, there's no manager. This is this is very interesting. Like, I, I think I'm going to reach out to you of saying of how that's actually evolved. Because, yeah, this is, I think this is the next level of evolution when you don't have to be there. You can just let it go. Yeah, and it, it tends, tends to be easier to do when you've got a higher number of more experienced engineers and product managers in the team, um, it's, it's easier to do then. Um, because you've got to think, when you're an engineer, what did you want? And when were you most successful? It's when, in fact, um, you were able to make your own decisions, act quickly, deliver fast, and then the people around you were supporting you. Um, and they were your, your colleagues and actually also your friends. So we also invest in making sure that the, the teams, once they're formed, get to know each other well. So we've got someone in Manchester and someone in London and someone I would say oh why don't you um why don't you pair of them in person why don't you pop on the train and go and actually hang out in their house and and do some work together and it's really important that those teams really trust each other so that's where the no no team leader thing comes in um, often you might find the product owner sort of takes on sort of the team voice of the team team secretary role and that's not really that's not really fair on those people or right uh, in fact you can say you should Imagine a squad as a single entity, that, then it's very easy to make that squad very accountable for their work. You can you can actually even say, this thing wasn't good enough. Um, if you say that to an individual, it's a very hard thing to do and people take it personally. But if you say it to a squad, the squad goes, all right, okay, well, we've had a retro on that and we found out why that happened. And then these are the specific things we're going to do. Um, and they heal themselves very quickly. So yeah, there's a number of things I'm happy to share, actually. I don't know if there's a, a URL link. Um, We've got a few docs that sort of express our um, our values, um, so I'm happy to share that if it's useful to you. I'm sure you've all got your own anyway. Brilliant, gents. Fantastic. Well, yeah, this has been the longest podcast we've had so far, and it sounds like it could have gone on again. Um, absolutely brilliant podcast. Thank you very much for joining, everyone. This has been the Evolution Exchange podcast. I'd like to take this opportunity to thank Dan, Francisco, 
James and Raphael. Um, if you would like to join a future podcast, please get in touch on LinkedIn or email me at michael.sullivan at evolutioncontract.co.uk.